Welcome to Media Tribe. I'm Shauna Kinnear and this is the podcast that tells the story behind the story. It's an opportunity for you and I to step into the shoes of the most extraordinary media folk who cover the issues that matter most. So, I mean, if you looked at what the military did put out, according to their data, about one in every 157 airstrikes resulted in a civilian death. And of the sample of 100 airstrikes that I looked at, one in five was resulting in civilian death, which is 37 times higher. Today, I'm chatting to Asmat Khan. Asmat is an award-winning investigative reporter, a New York Times Magazine contributing writer, a Carnegie Fellow, and a professor of journalism. Asmat, great to see you again. Lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, How is everything with you? Things are busy. I'm in the thick of an investigation right now and deep in the book. So, of course, dealing with all of that with the pandemic and and trying to support those around me. So it's it's definitely an interesting time. It's hectic. So Asma, do you want to tell us about your journey into journalism and how you became an investigative journalist? Sure. So I had a bit of an unconventional entry into journalism. I think that some of the key values of journalism, of caring about injustice and about caring about accountability were central to me. And I think part of that was sort of the result of growing up in the age of 9-11 and the Iraq war. I was in high school at the time and, you know, watched what would unfold to be a decade and, and even longer and continues into today of the global war on terror. And I found it fascinating. I found it infuriating in, in certain ways. And particularly when you look back at some of the journalism and the lead up to that war, uh, it's a really troubling and interesting time period. And, you know, I think that shaped a lot of my interests. And so I had gone into school to do political science and women's studies. And it actually wasn't until graduate school that I seriously considered journalism. And a part of that was, you know, I cared about injustice. I cared about research. I cared about understanding fundamental problems. But I also cared about reaching an audience and having the best tools to uncover truth and facts. And as much as I love academia and I enjoy doing research and I enjoy reading lots of books and scholarly articles, I also really like having access to information and materials that aren't part of an existing record. And there are many academics who do such incredible original research, but there are a lot of barriers to doing that kind of, you know, what journalists do as reporting uh, because of restrictions, you know, this kind of approvals you need in order to interview people, to talk to people, to to speak to human subjects, as it's called. Um, There's a process of approval you have to go through. And I wanted greater reach and I wanted more tools. And that's sort of what started getting me to think about journalism seriously. So I was in, I was at Oxford. I was finishing my graduate thesis and I was just looking down at this thick pile of papers and thinking, oh my gosh, three people are going to read this. That is so depressing. Like, what have you done? You've wasted this entire graduate, this time that you've spent in graduate school for something that very few people will ever read. And that was the beginning starting point for me. Well, I would like greater reach. I want more tools. I want to be in the thick of it. I want to collect information and study. Uh, 
you know, larger patterns and problems, like what's a great way to do this? And and that's how I got into journalism. So I actually, you know, I, it was 2008 at the time. And obviously a lot was happening in the United States. There was a presidential election that year. Uh, but part of the part of my graduate research had been related to Pakistan. And so it was a country that I'd been really interested in and fascinated by and wanted to do research in. But one of the best ways to do that is actually through journalism. And I did a little research. I realized that, you know, this was a country in which, you know, a decade before there had been one single TV news channel and that, you know, there had been a privatization of media and now there were dozens and there were lots of opportunities to work in news media there. And then there was so much happening in the country. You know, there was, you know, what we now recognize as this very extensive drone strike program in Pakistan that the United States had ramped up in 2008. Uh, There was this incredible lawyer's march to reinstate this deposed Supreme Court justice. So there was this crisis in the courts and this movement in the streets. Uh, And then there were a lot of changes in just political power there. And so it was fascinating to me. And, you know, to kind of prep myself before going, I did um, an in almost like an internship in local media in my hometown in Grand Rapids, Michigan, uh, to kind of prepare myself. And that was 2008. So you know, there was the presidential election. And I think until September, Michigan had been a battleground state mm-hmm. until the recession really took hold. And so there were a lot of politicians coming through Michigan. And I just took some clips from work at this local TV station. And I moved to Pakistan, brought them to these channels, did interviews and managed to get a, a reporting position. Asma, you actually went to Pakistan just off your own bat. Nobody commissioned you to go there. You were very much, I'm going to head over here and become a journalist. Yes. But to be fair, I had spent time working there before. I'd done field research there. I knew the country. I have, you know, relatives there. I spoke. (laughs) I learned that I didn't speak it as well as I thought I did. I spoke (laughs) the language. Um, And so, you know, it wasn't as though I were going completely unaware of what I was getting into, but I will say that it was a steep, steep learning curve. The media industry there is so different. Um, So I started out as a producer, was reporting for an English channel. So I first worked at an Urdu channel that was launching an English channel. I started reporting for that English channel and it was just, it was incredible because there's no dearth of news in that country. Every day there were so many different things competing for your attention. And the news media there is a little bit more experimental because it was so new in many ways. And it was just, it was wild and fascinating. So that was your, it was your baptism of fire by the sounds of it, which is always a good thing, of course. And so, so from Pakistan, you obviously have gone on to work for some of the biggest brands in US journalism. Um, I think I first came across you at PBS Frontline. And then, of course, you have written for New York Times magazine, which I definitely want to go into. But do you want to tell our audience a bit about the you know other outlets that you, you that you've worked for and kind of how you wiggled your way into those places, Asmat? I would say my journalistic education really happened at Frontline and the time that I spent there. And so I think I had So I had come back from Pakistan after like this wild year of reporting and returned to a country in recession and newspapers were declining. And I knew what I was good at and what I was most interested in, which was research and writing and reporting. 
And there was, you know, a position open at Frontline. And it actually took me, I think, several months to get. And I was following up relentlessly. Uh, but there was a researcher reporter position. And I, I, I honestly, like, I think I was on the, on the verge of taking another job because it was taking so long. Um, but it wound up really just becoming a home for me and where I really learned to love investigative journalism, where I know that you had Rainey Aronson, the executive director of Frontline on recently. Yeah. And so it was, she was really great at opening up the process behind the reporting and the ethics of that reporting. And so it was really just a wonderful upbringing for me. And so from there, I, you know, after several years at Frontline, I moved to a reporting team at Al Jazeera America, uh, their flagship show, America Tonight. And that was fascinating because I got to do some of my own investigations instead of just collaborating on a team. Uh, but I was also able to do more broadcast work and figure out, is that what I love? Is it? And I realized very quickly, it was purely investigative journalism that I was most uh, into. And so then from there, I moved on to BuzzFeed's investigations unit. Uh, and then after that is when I started writing for the Times Magazine. Amazing. I mean, for anybody that doesn't know you, I mean, you epitomize the greatest of investigative journalists today. I, you know, I really do think that. And so I'll, I'll go straight on to my next question, which is, of course, the kind of major question within the interview. Is there a story or report that you are quite proud of? And I'm obviously very much hoping we can talk about your extraordinary investigation that was featured in New York Times magazine called The Uncounted. Absolutely. I, you know, that that I think is maybe one of the, the investigations that was the hardest, took the the longest, and I think is one that I'm the most proud of. And part of that is because it was a culmination of so many other kinds of reporting that I'd done. Um, so this really started in, in early 2016 for me. And I was watching the war that was happening in Iraq and Syria uh, that the United States had been fighting for a year and a half at that point, um, primarily via airstrikes uh, in support of forces that were fighting ISIS. And I was looking at all of the reporting coming out and I was seeing very little about civilians who were dying from these airstrikes. I think I think I'd even had to do a story, you know, when they when the air campaign began and you would see these online reports of civilian casualties in Syria, of people who said like look these strikes hit civilians and then they would just kind of quiet down after a while. And I think by early 2016, I was seeing reports that, you know, in, in major papers that would say something akin to the United States have, has killed 20,000 to 25,000 ISIS fighters uh, in this air war. And I think at the same time, they were admitting to maybe eight civilian deaths, uh, which is really unprecedented. If you know the numbers and you're familiar with war, and I'd been working in war zones for a while at that point, you know that those numbers are extreme. Absolutely. And it, it's hard to believe, but more than that, it was it was more shocking that they were going uncontested. And I wanted to know if I could do a ground sample of these airstrikes. Is there a way for me to go on the ground and actually try to do some kind of a systematic sample that allows us to infer from this or understand from this, you know, how accurate these strikes really are, how often civilian casualties happen, and why they're happening. And I had done other ground samples and war zones before. So, you know, when I was on BuzzFeed's investigations team, I'd done a sample of 
U.S.-funded schools in, you know, seven battlefield provinces in the country and basically was able to show that, you know, a fraction of these exist today and are functioning as they were intended to, you know, what happened with them. And I just took that model of, okay, can I get a data set that would allow me to test this out and see it on the ground? And so there weren't, you know, I didn't have access to data that said, here's where every American airstrike has happened, that, you know, the military doesn't release that. So it's not like I could work from existing data. Instead, I I put my head together with a sociologist and another reporter, his name is Anand Gopal, and we sort of devised a strategy for me to do a ground sample that would try to find areas that were similar in size and makeup and try to sample them. And, you know, it was it was not an easy process. I think, you know, on one of my first trips to Iraq, I was able to interview a lot of people who'd fled these places, but I wasn't able to go to them myself. My second trip, I was, I could go to the first town and I started that sample and, and the, the findings were, were stunning. You know, I was looking at, I think in the first town I went to Kayara, I went to the sites of 10 airstrikes in this one town and half of them resulted in civilian death at the, at the time, you know, I wound up expanding the sample. Um, but that's how I knew that there was something here, that the numbers were real. There was a much bigger story at play. And I had to reach a number of airstrikes that was statistically significant and get to a number of towns that allowed me to do you know, what, what's called a cluster-based sample. So I just kept showing up in these towns. So, so in, in very simple terms, for anybody who hasn't read your piece, um, you know, what you were trying to disprove was that precision airstrikes are not in fact precise um, in, in very basic terms. And it was um, coalition forces who were, of course, targeting ISIS in, in places like Mosul. Um, but your findings showed that, in fact, they were killing loads of civilians. I think you said one in every five attack killed a civilian and that th- those figures had never been, been exposed before. Right. So, I mean, if you looked at what the military did put out in terms of information, According to their data, about one in every 157 airstrikes resulted in a civilian death. And of the sample of 100 airstrikes that I looked at, one in five was resulting in civilian death, which is 37 times higher than what they were claiming. It's it's not twice as high or three times as high. It's significantly higher. And so a, a major part of my mission wasn't just to show that, uh, but it was to dig deeply into why. Like, why are they so off? What are they missing? Is this a problem of just proximity? And there's somebody nearby who happened to be near this legitimate ISIS target? Or is it something else? And I actually found that the number one cause of these deaths uh, was often poor or outdated intelligence, which is not something that's often associated with them. But the, the goal was to understand, you know, are these precise in the way that they claim to be? You know, the military in the United States U.S. government officials were saying this was the most precise air campaign in the history of warfare. And even if it is the most precise to date, what's interesting is that, you know, if you have a problem of intelligence and you think you're hitting a bad guy or whomever it might be, but they're not actually, precision doesn't matter, right? You can be precise. You can hit the exact house you want to hit. But if the intel is wrong, and that's not the bad guy you thought it was, the fact that you can drop the most technologically precise coordinate and bomb in one particular spot is meaningless, right? That that doesn't help you when your intel was wrong. So that was one of the other major findings. Um, but on top of that, it was a look at sort of, you know, what do we owe those we harm? And, you know, the story of sur- the stories of survivors. So there were a number of families featured in the story. But the main character was a man named Basim Razo. 
who had lived in the United States for a while and had been sleeping in his home one night and woke up to the scene of an airstrike. You know, his wife, his daughter, his brother, and his nephew died in, in a single night. And he he's really just somebody who was able to take you through that story of what those kinds of losses mean, the effect it has on someone, and then the sort of journey for justice, you know, when there is no system left in place, right? When American troops are not on the ground in Iraq, when there is no means to try to request con- a condolence payment or some kind of compensation or even an acknowledgement of that loss, you know, what do you do? And so he was somebody I followed in that process and really sort of told the story of his case and later obtained, you know, the documents behind what happened in his airstrike and what went wrong and and sort of used his story as the anchor to that investigation. Bassam's story is so desperately sad, but I'm guessing Bassam is not unique. You know, he was stuck in the caliphate, isn't that right? And so he was severely injured after these US airstrikes. So he actually had to travel through Syria. Raqqa, also under ISIS control, to get into Turkey to have operations and surgery that he needed. Um, What I'd love to chat about as well was that you were tracking the YouTube videos that the coalition forces were uploading so you could actually see where they were dropping their bombs. Um, And, and, you know, that's such, it's documentary evidence. You cannot deny that they were not US bombs. And you also, when you're on the ground, actually going through fragments of those bombs. But but, um, the US forces eventually took those YouTube videos down. Is that right? Yeah. So um, the goal is to show like, look, we're winning this war. It's partly intended to match ISIS's propaganda efforts online, but it's also to just be a little bit transparent about this. And so, you know, when I did that sample of 100 strikes, I would bring the coordinates of the strikes in my sample. I would show them to the military and I would ask them, like, did you conduct this airstrike? Uh, And that's because, you know, it could have been the Iraqi Air Force. I was trying to understand and give them an opportunity to respond. In many cases, they told me, no, we didn't. We had nothing to do with that airstrike. And then I would go and look through these videos that I'd been collecting, that they'd been uploading, and I would match them. So I would basically match some of these areas of these strikes to videos they themselves, the United States-led coalition, had uploaded to be able to show you know, what's going on here? Like, do you not know where your own strikes fall? Do you not know the GPS coordinates of bombs you've dropped? What's behind this? And what does it mean if you can't even track those? And you're telling me no, that you didn't do this. And then on top of that, you know, I ask you about, you know, a particular video, and then you remove it from YouTube. Like, what does that tell us? Not just about transparency, but about, you know, effectiveness and about, you know, whether or not we're really winning this war in the way that that you claim. I mean, also within your investigation, I think there's a line saying that, you know, their take is that Iraqis are guilty until proven innocent. So somebody like Bassem is is treated as if he were ISIS, even though he would nothing to do with ISIS. And so that was part of his journey as well, was to kind of go to the authorities and tell them and, and kind of clear his name that his family were wrongly targeted and he has nothing to do with ISIS. And so that was that felt like a really, really strong thread within your investigation as well. Yeah. I mean, what does it say if a video of your house being very precisely bombed shows up on YouTube? People are going to think and labeled a car bomb factory, which is what happened to Basim Razo, right? People are going to think you're ISIS. And so 
you know, he was scared that in post-ISIS Mosul, people would attack him and his family because of that video and the sort of insinuation that he was ISIS because they had uploaded that. Now, he had gone through every means he had to try to clear his name. He even had a professor who was, he even had a cousin who was a professor at Yale. She penned an op-ed about it. The military said it would investigate. They, they lost track of it and they never got back to him. They they stopped looking at his case. This is someone who was more privileged in terms of access to military officials. He had relatives, friends. He was friends with other professors. If he was unable to get that answer, you know, what likelihood does an ordinary Iraqi have to be able to get an acknowledgement of that loss, to prove their innocence, to say, excuse me, no, I'm not ISIS? Um, but yeah, it's a system that essentially functions to label many of those uh, any of those who are caught up in it as guilty. And to prove their innocence is extremely hard. Uh, in fact, the level of, you know, the threshold level required for the intelligence for an airstrike is so much lower than the threshold to prove your innocence after the fact. It's just so tough. Uh, in most cases, it's it's all but impossible. He's one of the only examples of anyone who's been able to have one of these face-to-face -face meetings uh, and get an acknowledgement of his his loss. It's disturbing and it's grotesque. And I think, you know, also what you, what you mentioned in your piece is that the Americans, when they do kill civilians, they say it's, they are unavoidable accidents. I mean, when somebody says that to your face, Asmat, how do you kind of withhold the anger and the rage? Like what, what, what do you even say to that, that, you know, a, a civilian or a child dying is just an unavoidable accident, accident? Well, I think that making the stories of those who are on the receiving end of that come alive as is part of the response to to something like that. Uh, and certainly, you know, with the publication of a story, that's part of your effort is to make these not just numbers or statistics, but to make these victims of war we never hear about or hear from come alive, to allow them the opportunity to to speak in their own voices. But for me, as like an investigative reporter, I think that being lied to or being misled or being told something that isn't true is really just encouraging, right? Especially when there's an injustice involved. Sure, it could make me angry, but it often just propels me to do my work, to dig deeper or to collect more evidence or to get wider in scope, because uh, it often means there's something there. And so, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to misportray the military's responses to me, I actually think that there were many within the military who were incredibly helpful or who advocated for providing responses. I mean, there were others who weren't <laughs> as helpful or who actively tried to obstruct giving me, you know, looking at these coordinates, whatever it might be. But at the end of the day, you know, my goal was to try to understand that air campaign in totality in a way that hadn't been done before. It's not about whether or not this is avoidable. It's is the military willing to take the precautions it would need to to prevent those? Like, would it consider those necessary in order to stop them? And that's that's a debate we don't really have. People don't talk about, you know, there are actual numbers. The military has a rate for the number of civilians it would allow for a particular kind of airstrike to die. And it would exchange as, you know, proportional to the military advantage gained. That number changes. It's classified. We don't know. For example, there are those, some who've said, you know, it was as high as 13 during the anti-ISIS air war that you're aware of in advance of the death before it has to go through more approvals. Um, but yeah, I mean, we put a cost on on life in that way. And it's not, 
you know, saying it's unavoidable isn't accurate. There is a, there's an actual calculation that takes place. So Asma, you spent 18 months on this investigation. You visited something like 150 sites in northern Iraq. I know when we had our lovely lunch probably a year ago now, for the non-journalists listening in, it wasn't as if you just rocked up to the New York Times magazine and said, here, I have a great investigation. Um, you wouldn't hand me you know, a blank check um, and let me go off and do this. Can you kind of accurately describe how difficult it is to get investigations like this over the line? Because I don't think we can overstate how important this level of journalism is. So I think it would been would have been very hard for me in early 2016 to go to any editor or news organization and say, "Hey, I want to spend the next 18 months investigating air war. Will you fund me to do this?" And you know, I know this because I was kind of talking about it with people at the time, uh, but it wasn't seen as a high priority, right? The anti-ISIS air war was uncontroversial. Uh, the public didn't particularly care about the civilian costs of it. The public is mostly interested when it comes to stories about ISIS. It's mostly interested in stories about ISIS's brutality, which is understandable, um, and that reporting should be done. Right? That's necessary. I'm not disputing that. But you know, newsrooms, in terms of its editorial direction, weren't prioritizing that kind of coverage. And so, honestly, it was something that I I think I just started applying for reporting grants to do. I knew that. At the time that I started working on this, I was kind of unhappy with something I'd been assigned. You know, I felt like this was going untouched through deep investigation. So I thought, well, let me see if I can fund the beginnings of it. Let me see what I can find. And I think that by October of 2016, I had done that first ground sample in, in Kayara and knew that this was solid. And that's when I started seriously pitching it. I think I'd, you know, I'd talked about it with some editors in advance of going to Iraq, but it was really after Kayara that I felt like it was strong. And so, you know, after I'd gone, so we wound up being three different towns and sometimes I'd like roll up to a town and it would be depopulated or you can't get access to it. And I would find all of these restrictions and problems, but um, halfway through, I think is when we brought it to the the New York Times magazine. Uh, and it, it was, it was great to get their investment of time and resources you know, at that point, a lot of the sample had been done. I would say about half of it had been done, but there was still more to do. But for Kayara, I think I was seeing around 30 to 40% of them were resulting in civilian deaths. And that's really stunning to see. But, you know, no editor would have known that until you'd done the work to be able to show it. Yeah, it's amazing. So you really had to go out and do it yourself before you actually get a commission. So kind of put in your own resources and time. It's good for our audience to understand that. And that's how investigative journalism usually works. Before my last question, you're now writing a book, Asmat. It's all related. And um, what's the name of the book and when should we expect it out? It's called Precision Strike. Uh, and the manuscript is due to Random House uh, next year. So I'm in the process of of writing and reporting. I'm still making trips. Um, but it's an extension of the work that I did in Iraq. Uh, it extends to Syria, Afghanistan, Pakistan, but also looks at some more philosophical questions about what we owe those we harm, you know, whether we could actually live in a society in which air war didn't exist and what it would take. Yeah, well, no doubt that's going to be a brilliant book. So we all will buy that um, when it when it comes out. Asma, last question, always a bit of crack, really, this one. But is there a, a moment in your career that's been rather crazy that you've never really told anybody about? I, I'm sure you have a ton of them because of all the traveling you do. 
Sure. I think that one of the the biggest challenges for me was actually when I was in Pakistan, you know, more than a decade ago and, and doing that reporting. And I started getting death threats from people claiming to be Taliban. And I had no way of knowing who it was. I actually went through, you know, as an investigative reporter, as somebody who's obsessed with figuring things out, I really wanted to know what was happening. Is this real? Is it actually this, you know, I was getting these threats from somebody claiming to be this specific militant commander of the Pakistani Taliban. And, you know, everything about it didn't ring true. And yet they were able to like track my every move, follow me to particular places, tell me what like car I was traveling in, what license plate I number of the car, where I was, my address, all of these disturbing details. Um, and I essentially had my own like personal stalker and I wound up leaving the country, coming back and it continued. And it got to the point where I was getting this like daily countdown. So they would say, you know, you have two weeks to leave the country. Oh my God. The next day they'd be like, you have 12 days. And the next day they'd be like, you have 10 days. And I'd be like, wait, you just skipped two days. Like give me my two days back. <laughs> they can't um, count. <laughs> exactly. So, um, you know, there are all of these things that jar you as a reporter and, and one, you was that asthmat though. Did you, did you find out? I don't know. My theory, my theory is that like I must have just like made some guy angry and like this was his revenge is that he went to like the Pakistani intelligence agencies and had them really just mess with me. Um oh god. But I don't know. And so it's like still is confusing to me to this day. This like enduring mystery. Oh that's horrible. Did, have you gone back since? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Many, many times. Because yeah. you have family there, I know. Yeah. Oh, bloody hell. That's awful. <laughs> there was a period of time in which I didn't. But in terms of like crazy things that have happened to me that I can talk about, this is one that I think sort of reflects the weirdness of this job. And sometimes, you know, you can't solve everything. You can't figure out everything and just how plaguing that can be for someone like myself. Yeah, no doubt. Oh, well, what a weirdo and loser um, that person was. Asma, you're an absolute star. Thanks a million for coming on the podcast. Everybody should follow you on Twitter and um, keep an eye out for your book. Um, we really appreciate your time, Asma. Thanks a million. Happy to. Wonderful talking to you, Shauna. If you liked what you heard on this episode of Media Tribe, tune in next week as I'll be dropping new shows every week with all sorts of legendary folk from the industry. And if you could leave me a review and rating, that would be really appreciated. Also, get in touch on social media at Shauna on Twitter or at Shauna Kinnear on Instagram and feel free to suggest new guests. Right, that's it. Until next week, see you then. This episode is edited by Ryan Ferguson.